But for me, it was actually really important because it was a way for me to find a voice. Yeah, totally. I, your playfulness sounds like a kind of key idea. They're like an anarchic playfulness yeah. that goes outside the bounds of comfortability a little bit. Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I am Troy Polidori, and I am not on lockdown, but Austin is. Oh, yay. We're like, what, one month in now of uh, lockdown 3.0, I guess, here in Sydney, so... Uh, we're navigating. It's just tough with the herky-jerky. You're open, you're not, you're open, you're not. So, you know, we're pushing through, but we're surviving, I guess you could say. So, what better than to talk about some theory shit with my best friend? Let's do it. What do we got to talk about today? Oh, we have a a pretty interesting and cool little thing to talk about today. Uh, We're going to be talking about a little, um, blog post, I guess. It's like a throwback to 10 years ago. Well, blog posts. Oh shit! Do blogs yeah. still exist? People still write blogs. Yeah, blogs are still there, man. They're like uh, they're like LPs in the nineties, you know, like Twitter with CDs. Oh, but they're they're still okay. in the underground, and they're going to come back and be all the rage again in like fifteen years. Uh, are they? Except they're going to be like um, just like implanted into your brain somehow. So it's not even going to be a blog. It's just going to be like a running commentary, like a, like a voice monologue that you're just going to be constantly listening to or something like, like, like a podcast, but we're just going to, we're going to talk blogs. We don't write blogs. And then people just kind of like listen to them. Is that, that'll be, that'll be the Spotify of blogs. Okay. Right. But then actual blog posts will be sold as NFTs in in 15 (laughs) years. So you can buy this blog post that was written by Matt Brunig in 2021. You can buy that in like 20 years as an NFT. Okay, I, I like that idea. Okay, perfect. I'm not sure how much I'll be able to get for this particular NFT, but sign me up. I'm <laughs> I'm in the bidding for it. <laughs> All our old blogs from back in college, man. Those will be those will be classics. I knew that that was going to be a financial kind of windfall <laughs> for us if we just would write about obscure theological musings. The mind of an early young grad student and uh, just about to graduate undergrad. I'm sure that'll fetch a lot of money. I bet those are so shitty, dude. I don't even want to think about it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so we're going to talk about this blog post by Matt Brunig um, about the concept of like post-scarcity and music. And I'll probably talk about film because I was thinking a lot about Netflix, even though they were talking about like music streaming services and things like that. But but also we do want to give you a quick update that uh, we do have some Patreon news. So Troy, what's going on with that? Yeah, so just a, um, a quick note to anybody who's not um, a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash Dawn and get access to some goodies like our Discord server, our past uh, catalog of bonus episodes, and most importantly for right now, access to voting on our next patron-sponsored episode. Currently, we just finished the polling for our next patron-sponsored episode, and philosophy of education slash pedagogy one so we're going to be at some point in the near future doing an episode on the philosophy of pedagogy um we want to do something creative we don't want to do something like really basic and obvious like read some of paulo Freire or something like that as great as that is obviously we want to do something a little bit more creative uh, than that we have some ideas but if any of you out there whether a patron or not have any sort of creative and interesting ideas about how to approach 
the philosophy of education and pedagogy, throw them our way on social media, uh, and we'll take a look at them. But that's going to be the topic for our next patron-sponsored episode. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, all right. Let's uh, get into this madness. You know what we got to do, man? We got to start this episode off the way we start off every motherfucking episode. It's with the shitty minute. This is the time of the show where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's been pissing us off. So, Troy, what's been chapping your hide, brother? So, Austin, do you know what the hot hand fallacy is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so for I don't believe it. I don't believe I don't believe the hot hand fallacy because yeah, I have experienced neither. the hot hand. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, think, that's that's some stem is, bullshit right there. That's what that is. <laughs> that's some bullshit, man. <laughs> <laughs> um so for listeners out there, the hot hand fallacy is sort of I think it was coined um in the early two thousands, maybe the late nineties. And it's basically a reference to this um I mean, for those who coined it the hot hand fallacy, it's supposed to be a logical fallacy. Um referencing the idea of there being a hot hand typically utilize the term is typically utilized to denote an experience that athletes have where you feel like you get in the zone in such a way that like the probability of you making a goal or a score or whatever um, sort of dramatically increases uh, and there's you know various ways of describing it I think anyone who's ever played sports um, can can say something about that and I think anybody who did play sports maybe, in a way that was more foundational than their academic experience is probably like you and me, where we have that kind of background, um, is very prone to believing that there's such a phenomenon as the hot hand. Uh, not just that, yeah. you, that you feel, not just that you feel that way, but that you actually get that probability, <laughs> the dramatic probability increase, right? Because it's, yes. it's one thing to say you feel yes. like, a, like a phenomenological feeling, right? Everybody knows that's the case. No one denies that. The question is whether or not that feeling corresponds to and is sort of intimately connected in some important way with the actual sort of change in probabilities that's supposed to happen and that experience is sort of a reaction to right it's not supposed to be an irrational uh, or necessarily an irrational thing although of course it can it can uh, like expand uh, into irrational zones in certain points um so if you're an athlete you know what the hot hand is you've experienced it probably either uh, yourself subjectively or in other people um, and so sort of the more analytically minded um, sports uh, theorists and whatnot sort of coined this idea of the hot hand fallacy to denote the, the notion that um, that hot hand probability increase is false. Not that the experience that, cor- that corresponds to it's false, because that's a real experience. Everyone knows that that happens, right? But that it, it's sort of an irrational feeling that doesn't correspond in any way to any actual probability increase. Um that then goes away when you sort of are no longer hot or whatever. And so all throughout like the early 2000s, like, you know, bespeckled bloggers who write about sports and who have never played it, um, will talk about how there's no hot hand. Um, it's just a sort of irrational phenomenological thing that happens that doesn't correspond to anything real. And that, uh, it's sort of akin to like a gambler's fallacy where you expect some a priori probability um, to change based upon circumstances. And of course, our priori probabilities by definition don't change based upon circumstances, right? Um, right. So there is this whole like dividing line where it's like, if you believed in the hot hand, you were sort of a rube, you were sort of irrational, you're not really analytically minded, you're just, you're the kind of guy that got made fun of in Moneyball, right? That you think okay. that the fact that the baseball player um, 
like uh, was uh, embarrassed by his girlfriend means that he's he's going to be a shitty player and so you shouldn't draft him. That kind of thing, mm. right? Um, like that's your scouting, right? It's like stupid, superficial personality traits or something and providing some deeper meaning. Um, mm-hmm. Then, and this is, I'm going to be really unprofessional here and I was just t- telling Austin before we started recording, um, there, a new uh, book came out and I don't know who wrote it and I don't remember where I heard him on a podcast and I don't know what the book's <laughs> called. Because <laughs> I, I wrote down in a note that I wanted to talk about the hot hand fallacy and what happened in the recent news about it in this little like uh, notes folder thing that I have on my phone, right? And for some stupid reason, I didn't write down any of the identifying things about it. So I promise, um, I sort of promise, I'm going to try my best to find all that stuff out and put it in the show notes. So I apologize for everybody who's listening and wants to like look this up, but you have to go into the show notes or whatever um, to, to see this. But I promise you it's a real thing. I heard it on a podcast. It's a real thing. Um, uh, a certain like data scientist uh, talked about how a big problem with the hot hand fallacy or the notion that this is a fallacy has always been that the way that they try to prove that is by showing statistically that there's no um, there's no actual probability increase uh, after you make a shot. This is in basketball specifically he was talking about. After you make a shot versus before you make a shot. There's no sense in which the more shots you make in a row, the greater your probability increases afterwards to sort of denote some sense of a hot hand, right? There's just no statistically significant um, evidence that there's such a thing as a hot hand. And of course, the big problem with that is that's not taking into account that when you when you when you have the hot hand, you end up taking more difficult shots because you feel yeah. like you can make them when before you couldn't. Right? That's a phenomenon everyone knows. When you get hot, you take also checks. also defensive pressure. Defensive pressure increases on you once you're hot. So yeah, there's contextual factors, right? And of course, yeah, we have a yeah. we have a term for this. It's called a heat check, right? It's That's when right. you you try to see how hot you are by taking a ridiculously difficult <laughs> shot, <laughs> right? which is stupid yeah. and irrational a lot of the times, right? So I'm not saying this is like whole thing is is, is totally um, perfectly rational, rational or whatever. Anyway, so this guy figured out how to actually measure. Um, Whoa! The difficulty, like the shot, because the, the the new like scientific analytic thing in basketball that's like this year is coming out is shot difficulty, where historically they haven't, they've only ever been able to calculate how difficult a certain shot is for anybody in the league, like on average, but not based upon that player's own past results, which is really the thing okay. you would want, right? Because a, a difficult shot for Steph Curry is not the same thing as a difficult shot for Giannis Antetokounmpo or whatever, right? Very, very different. So anyways, there's all this new uh, data science on shot quality. And basically this dude that I heard, data scientist comes out with a new book. It's something about how the hot hot hand fallacy is wrong. And he's basically like, we've proven um, through this new data science that um, the hot hand is actually real. Not as dramatically real as maybe as people would maybe like if they're sort of into that sort of thing. But they sort of disproven the idea that it's a fallacy and shown that there actually is a probability increase if you factor in the quality of the shot the person takes because the difficulty of the shots tend to go up as um, along with um, when the hot hand is supposed to be occurring, right? So if you factor that in, Interesting. it actually shows that the hot hand is real. And I thought this whole thing was so amazing. I haven't dug into the science. I'm not going to do it because I don't really care that much. But I love the idea that this like smug you know, uh, tape in the middle of your glasses kind of kind of shit that goes on 
about using the hot hand as a way to demarcate who was actually intelligent in sports and who's just a rube, right? The whole time has been wrong. And that really, frankly, a lot of idiots, like in basketball, you're Charles Barkley's, you're Shaq's, not the cream of the crop when it comes to actually intelligently analyzing things, right? But who actually have experienced this hot hand thing just through their intuition have been like at least mostly right the whole time. <laughs> right? mm. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that, you know, you and I, we've talked about this before, I think, on occasion, this idea of the hot hand fallacy and that, you know, I, I, I know your opinions, it's pretty similar to mine, but I can't remember exactly. But I've always held that, um, that the way that those who sort of propagate the notion that the hot hand's a fallacy explain their reasoning is just very wrong. And especially, mm. and most importantly, in the sense that it's not an a priori probability, such that it would be comparable to like the gambler's fallacy, right? Where the flip of a coin, one um, outcome of the flip of a coin doesn't affect future outcomes. That's a very strict a priori probability. It doesn't change based upon circumstances or past um, outcomes, right? That's yeah. not the They're case. called Markov, Markov chains. What does that mean? That's So that's the name of the mathematician. That's the type of probability where uh, like past states doesn't have any bearing on future probability, but nevertheless, you can still measure future probability based on kind of the current state of affairs. Okay. So yeah, I mean, like the flip of a coin. Yeah, it's a Markov, just call that Markov a, chain. A, yeah, just call the a priori probabilities in, in philosophy, I think. Oh, oh cool. Um, cool. Yeah, so same thing. And the crucial thing about taking a shot in basketball is that it's not an a priori probability. <laughs> um, yeah, but it, the thing that pisses me off about it is what they don't understand is that, so shooting a basketball... Um, it is tied to the, the the past flow of your mechanics, right? And so when you are in a groove, let's say, when you're hot, it's because somehow your mechanics have clicked together, which means that your testosterone, your muscles, your energy, your eye, your focus, um, maybe you've drowned out the crowd noise, maybe your ankles are feeling strong, maybe you're pushing you know, off your feet rather than using too much arm, um, the angle of your elbow, maybe you've just found the right spot. And because it's a repetitive physical motion, what I think of as being maybe a more sort of like, let's say scientific in the loosest sense possible way of understanding what like um, uh, a hot hand is when someone is hot, when someone is in the groove, it's because all of those things are in line and that takes a minute. Like if I go out right now and shoot a basketball um, and I'm not warmed up, it might take me a minute to find the groove and then all of a sudden I'm going to find the groove, right? It's just a refined and and more intensely refined version of that. You know, someone like Steph Curry still needs to get warmed up. When he wakes up first thing in the morning, if he's been sleeping on his right side and his arm is a little sleepy, he's not going to jump out into the backyard and drain 100 threes in a row like he did in that one practice. But if I, he does I his he warm still, ups, though, yeah, he probably still would. Yeah, fuck <laughs> it. Okay, yeah. Um, but any any non uh, non immortal that's playing basketball. Um, <laughs> He, you know, he's gonna do his stretch. He's gonna get whatever his his morning thing is. Maybe he's got like a mental thing that he's like, all right, I'm 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 getting ready to shoot today. And he goes into the arena, and he's got whatever it is that gets him into his mental, psychobiological, physical groove, right? And you do then get into a flow, which we can call a hot hand, but it really just means that the sort of like biomechanics of his body in the situation are all gelling for the task that is set before him, which is to shoot ball into net, you know? Um, so I 100% think that there is a, a scientific way to approach it, too. I just think that data science is probably the wrong way to do it. 
Yeah, I think that's that's certainly correct. I I would also argue that it's not even just a a physiological like a physiological input, and then you get the output, which is either made basket or missed basket, right? It's even more so that you know, the, in addition to like a priori probabilities, we also have what are called epistemic probabilities, right? Where someone's sort of belief in the probability affects in some way what the probability is, um, and I think that obtains too mm. in a way that's that's external yes. to the physiological inputs as well, and that's what I think is the real catch, right? Because you know, you can't. I think you're right that if it, if it was a purely like a really complex physiological input then data science is just not going to be the kind of thing that can really measure it unless you have like electrodes all over measuring, you know, it's <laughs> right. like, you know, biological state at every moment. Um, you just can't do that. So data science is not really going to help you a whole lot there. Uh, that's correct. Certainly. That's already a, pro- already a problem. But even in addition to that, I think it's even sort of extra um, uh, biochemical at that point. Um, and that's really the sort of philosophical bugbear, I think, for um, those who propose the hot hand fallacy. Um so yeah, I mean, mm. I just wanted to share that because I thought it was really cool that, and I guess um, I don't know, I don't know the sort of intricacies of this, but the guy was also saying um, the sort of big discovery in mathematics is that something like the gambler's fallacy, even at a theoretical level, is also wrong, even at a purely oh, theoretical weird. level. And I, I, I didn't. Uh, he basically just said like, there's this paper written by like three grad students somewhere, and I don't remember like. Indonesia or something I don't remember um, and, mm. and and they and they basically approved that that was the case I don't know about that and that <laughs> that sounds like a lot and I don't want to get into it because that's a, a level of uh, like analytic detail that I'm not going to be conversing in but either way I wanted to throw up a win for all those people out there who continued believing in the hot hand even when a bunch of nerds told you it was stupid you were right for sticking to your guns and calling them nerds Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, shit. All right, let's end it there and let's get into this main segment. Yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so can you talk us through – I mean I've got the title of the, the, the blog post that we're going to be talking about here. It's from mattbrunig.com. It's called What is Lost in Post-Scarcity? And why did you recommend this? You said that it was getting a little bit of attention online, yeah? Yeah, so it's a really short little blog post. Um, and for anybody who doesn't know, Matt Brunig uh, of the People's Policy Project fame, uh, kind of leftist think tank that, that he uh, runs almost exclusively, I think. Um, and they produce a lot of work. He also writes for Jacobin on occasion. Pretty popular in the social media, lefty, lefty social media sphere. And so I guess there was a discussion going on and um, some back and forth and some of uh, and some like editorials, uh, online editorials, about Spotify and what Spotify is doing to music listening at the individual level and also music culture and music's effect on culture on a large scale. Yeah. And so I guess it would be helpful, I think, to just kind of summarize a couple of the points that Bruning's responding to first, and then sort of talk about what his sort of his sort of rumination is on the whole thing. So, okay, cool. Let's do it. Yeah. So the first one comes from uh, David Dayen. Uh, I don't know who he is. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but I guess he writes for the American Mm-mm. Prospect. Um, and I guess the original the original um, sort of complaint that uh, Dayen had, uh, and it's a popular one that I think anybody who loves music and has sort of a, a sense in which they, they identify music as a part of their personality in some important way. And I'm, I would certainly include myself uh, in that. 
thinks of Spotify uh, for any benefits that it may have, and um, I'm sure that there are there are even the most cynical among us can admit that there are a lot of benefits to it. Uh, there's a, there's a huge downside to something like a huge ubiquitous streaming service that has all of the music in the world on it, um, and that's that it makes music listening um, so almost purely functional, right? Because of the ubiquity, because of the ease, because of um, all sorts of other factors, music listening becomes like aural wallpaper. Wallpaper is sort of the phrase people use, mm. right? Which is a background thing you put on, and then you do other things. You don't ever actually make music listening an end in its end in and of itself, right? It's sort of a means to some other end, or it um, sort of mm. occupies mm. some space in the background. Which you know, some music is supposed to do that, like ambient music, right? But of course, not all music is ambient music. Much of it's you know meant to be um, enjoyed and paid attention to. Uh, at the same time. Mm. And so I guess Ryan Cooper, who's a, a guy I follow, he writes for The Week. I think he's a really good uh, editorialist and ger- political journalist. Um, he wrote a response saying that the the big problem with Spotify uh, that sort of has been noticed here by Dan is the, uh, out, the sort of recommendation algorithm, right? It's the fact that the recommendation algorithm is sort of uh, incentivized given that Spotify is a private corporation um, to sort of never challenge you, right? And to never, and to eventually um, sort of create a natural monopoly um, where one company would get more and more music that would become more and more attractive to people who want uh, more and more music. And then was sort of um, recommend music only so as to satiate uh, and to not rock the boat at all and to never even challenge, not even politically, just musically in general. Uh, and so mm-hmm. music is incentivized to all be the same and to never be any different and unique. Um, and then, of course, the problem of uh, being a natural no- monopoly means that it can pay the vast majority of its artists like complete shit. Um, that's <laughs> terrible both for musicians and for music culture, as it means that only uh, a very small number of people can actually dedicate their time to making music. Uh, it's like a full-time uh, career. And that's yeah. certainly true, right? Or do you have any thought about that? Well, my just my Byung-Chul Han alarm bells are going off here with this idea of like homogenization. There's no encounter with the other. There's nothing trying to nothing's rocking the boat. Reminds me also of a little bit of what Scorsese said about um, Marvel films not being cinema yeah. because there's no risk. Um, it's more like a theme park. And what is the whole point of that? It's to amuse. So then I'm thinking of like Neil Postman and this idea of um, like amusing ourselves to death by taking these digital somas in the aural or in the visual forms um to to basically just uh create steady flows of dopamine production and pleasure and um comfort right like there's something nice by being able to go look at my spotify weekly discover list and know that they're gonna give me some gems that match perfectly for um, the pleasure that my ears are desiring while I'm working or working out or driving somewhere or just walking around the house or just sitting there scrolling or whatever. And it's just the same. As Byung Chul Han would say, it's the inferno of the same. It's more and more of this kind of fabricated, homogenized system of a type of flowing of desire, but a type of retrains how desire flows so that desire never actually has ruptures or so that it never really attests to maybe even the deeper ruptures of lack that are within us that would cause us to 
challenge ourselves or to 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 confront something that might um, transform us, you know. So that's where my immediately when I'm seeing this, that that's what's going off in in my mind, and I feel the same way about like Netflix, you know, in particular. Mm. And I think I've complained about this with regards to Netflix, like why I get like Netflix fatigue. It's 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 something that I almost intuit more than I can even articulate. But there's something about even just the form, the way that that a lot of um, the visual media content is made, it's all the same. It's all same samey. It, it's all formulaic in terms of its structure. Um, it's all formulaic in the way that the acting is performed. It's all formulaic in the way that costumes are made and the way that scripts um, scripts take you on a particular journey. It's very rare that you get confronted with something, which is why I really enjoy the films that do provide some kind of confrontation. Even something like Nomadland that got a lot of mainstream love for me was a very confronting film because it was slow and because of a lot of the themes that it addressed and because of its poetic beauty that allowed you to kind of sit with it, you know? So... You know, the, those things are lacking when you talk about these streaming services because um, they do cause a break. Because after I saw Nomadland, I didn't want to watch anything else. <laughs> and I wanted to just sit and ponder. And when you just want to sit and ponder or reflect, you're not consuming. And they need to just continually stimulate desire for consumption. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's not a controversial thesis at all to say that um, this is a sort of endemic phenomenon happening in basically every media sphere. And so it's certainly yep. not an accident. Like there's a sort of structure in place which is making this the case. I know that uh, a lot of I my, think the like, culture war in news and journalism is also guilty of this. By the way, they're saying the same thing, chasing each other's chase, chasing each other in circles. Nothing's actually moving forward, right? It's just kind of giving you the same type of sensationalist arguments that you've come to expect when you open up whatever the news site is that you're looking for. I think it's seeping into every aspect of life. But that again is my Byung Chul Han obsession coming out. Yeah, the major difference I would see though is that the the sort of the sort of sameness of feeling that you get when you engage in like political Twitter or worst case scenario twenty four hour news cycle on like cable news is like an anger, like a like a like an up and down wave of, <laughs> of anger, resentment, right, and then sleep. Yeah. Whereas at least at least with music, you can get like the chill vibes. It's samey, samey, right? Yeah. But at least it's the yeah, chill yeah. vibes, so it's not like actually literally killing you. Right by making your blood pressure blood pressure rise, so <laughs> there's, there's a there's a small benefit at least to um, music and I think in Netflix in the sense that you can do like a Netflix and chill. You can't do a cable news and chill. That doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's a cable news and anger bang is what you get with that <laughs> one. <laughs> if only, right? Yeah, yeah. Usually it's cable cable news and um, nobody's horny anymore. Yeah, yeah. To, yeah no, one, no one's gonna bang you if you're watching cable news all day, <laughs> unless you have you know enough money to, to pay them to do it. In which case, then you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, have you ever talked to Gen Zers um, who like the? It seems like the key word when describing what's good about a song. So let me back up. So. If you existed, like you grew up and like had your musical education in the '90s, for instance, like we did, right? Um, yeah. There's a there's a sort of feeling you get from music that made you love it originally, whether it was like pop punk for you, alternative rock, or like even the worst case, like for me, new metal at a certain point, like I was really into. Um, 
there's a certain feeling that you get from that and you can sort of pinpoint that feeling as being the key thing that drives you or, or attaches you or whatever, right? And it might be like, I don't know, what do you think that feeling is with pop punk? Like, what was it that for you was like, that's the thing? What do you mean? What do you, what, what do you mean? Well, I think like with new metal, it was kind of like fun anger, right? It's like expressing and releasing an, an anger that you have trapped that you can't express otherwise and it's in a fun way. Right, it's kind of destructive, not actually in the world, but it feels destructive, but in like a fun way. Yeah. So, like the greatest example was like Limp Bizkit's "Break Stuff." That was a phenomenon. One because it was like a really catchy song uh, in like a really stupid way, right? But then also like it, it really captured that feeling that a lot of uh, new metal gave to people, right? And there's like there's different plays on that and different versions of that, right? Different tokens of that. Because like for Corn, I think it was a little different. It was a little bit more depressive than it was like frat boy partying kind of destruction mm. um, but there's something some similarity of feeling that's there right i think for like people who were in the early 90s who were a little older than us and were into grunge like were alice in chains and Soundgarden and nirvana and uh pearl jam were like the the big bands there was something about the kind of authenticity of emotion and dirtiness of it right that that, that felt mm. important for gen x crowd in a way that the 80s um especially like 80s pop being so glossy right it was a reaction to that in an important way. So I, I do feel like there's some yeah. um, like emotive um, singularity that happens with a new musical movement. And yeah, yeah. I mean, does that make any sense at all? Do you have like a similar experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Um, I think for me, I mean, the, the pop punk thing too was just about kind of like getting out of the town, right? Getting out of the suburbs. I felt like I was trapped in the suburbs. And so I think for me, pop punk was the first time that I... I got a little bit of angst, but it was like a safe, like a middle-class white boy angst, okay. right? Like it wasn't like, it, like a little bit of like the skate punk stuff, you know, veered into politics, but I wasn't really heavy into the political stuff until a little bit later. So for me, when I was young, the first thing that got me was, you know, it was, it was, um, you know, angry about, or, or, or just being playful. Like a lot of it was like playful angst too. Kind of like Ferris Bueller, very sort of like liberal, like, hmm. like kind of angsty, like let's ditch school and cause some chaos sort of thing and exert freedom however we can. Um, it was kind of like that kind of like anarcho liberal kind of freedomy kind of stuff that, that really was what got it from me, which, which you could think of in some ways as not being like, um, revolutionary enough but for me it was actually really important because it was a way for me to yeah. find a voice outside of just like the rigid structures of the cookie cutter Stepford Wives live that I kind of grew up in you know yeah totally um, I get yeah, playfulness sounds like a kind of key idea they're like a freedom an anarchic playfulness yeah. that goes outside the bounds of comfortability a little bit now, there is a sense in which pop punk songs feel like they could have just been written in the moment right then Right? Yes. It's just kind of playing with things as you go along. Yeah, well, and it was the attitude of them on stage, right? The attitude of them on stage. And I watched a lot of like behind the behind the, the scenes footage stuff. And, you know, they were all like kind of like punks. They were just dicks. And they were saying things that were like offensive and edgy. And, you know, um, they were just kind of being bratty. And there was something about that. Like, do you remember that Living End song that's like, because I'm a brat and I know everything and I talk back and I'm not listening to anything you say? Like that yeah. song is political. That song is political, but I never really paid attention to the politics end of it. I just remember that part. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can be bratty, you know? And here I am at this Green Day concert with 15,000 other teenagers or, like, early 20-year-olds. And we're just like, yeah, you know? 
Um, so there was something about that for me. It was just kind of a little bit of an attitude that I didn't get to um, express otherwise. No, I like that. It's kind of a, it's, I think a really important thing. Like every kid at like what, three or four or something, maybe two, goes through like when they learn how to say no and what it means. Like they gain the concept yeah, yeah. of no, right? And so they yeah, just yeah. use it nonstop because it's like, oh my God, I have this power I didn't know that I had. And I'm going to use it to like, to like challenge all the rules, not just break them. I'm going to like challenge them, like see how far I can exercise my newfound autonomy, right? And there's something about yeah. that same spirit in in punk where it's like, yeah, I'm going to exercise my freedom because it's like an inherently good thing. And yeah, maybe sometimes I'll break some eggs and whatever, but that's okay because it's worth it for the sake of like exercising this capacity that's really important to who I am and sort of even developing who I am. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I say all that just to say if, if there are these kind of like zeitgeisty um, kind of emotive uh, singularities or whatever you want to call it that, that exist in certain times, um, the one that Gen Zers seem to talk about is the vibes. I hear this, you hear this term a lot with respect to judging what's good about music today from Gen Zers about their, their sort of Gen Z heroes, right? Like it's not, oh, that melody is so catchy or, oh, that riff is so awesome, or, um, you know, whatever you might sort of evaluate as the thing which sort of catches your attention and makes you like something initially. It's that, like, it vibes, right? And I've had such a hard yeah. time understanding that because, not because it's wrong, it's certainly, there's nothing, nothing right or wrong about this, right? Um, mm -hmm. But it's just, it's not a thing that I think I internalize in the way that uh, a lot of younger people do. And I do wonder if that kind of coincides in some way with this notion of, of music serving this kind of function now um, in this sort of Spotify world where it's sort of, you know, the, rec the recommendation algorithm is kind of meant to keep the vibes the same. Like if that's maybe the governing principle behind it, you know? And so it's going to be, it sort of forms musical subjects in such a way that what they're seeking out is the vibes. And that, I'm not going to like argue that that genealogically means that it's like necessarily bad or anything. But I just wonder if there's some connection there. Cause I, I hear that term a lot about evaluating music and it's in the vibes being the important thing. And I've always had a, a tough time understanding that. What do you think about that hypothesis? I don't really know. I haven't thought about that before. Um, I don't know. I mean, why, why, why do you kind of think the way that you do about it? I don't know. It's just a connection um, that I've made in talking to like students and young people and stuff about yeah. um, about music and how they, they, and I think a lot of it goes back to this. It's a point mentioned in the article here about how sort of, sort of music sort of helps form personal identity for, yeah. um, for people and that it's drastically changed in the Spotify era. Um, mm. And it's, it's kind of hard to say why it's certainly the case that, you know, as my kind of previous hypothesis was that there's this like emotive singularity that happens at different moments and, and that, that's how people latch onto a certain kind of music. And then because it's this like intimate connection with the, their emotional state at the time, they form this identity that's in part constituted by that music. Right. Um, and that was the case, I think for both of us to varying degrees and pretty much yeah. almost anybody who's interested in, in the arts at all, is going to have some sort of similar story, right. From whatever era they're talking mm -hmm. about. And that that's, maybe not really happening anymore mm. or it's happening in maybe an importantly different way um 
Yeah, and, and I don't know what that is. I haven't like I don't have an analysis for what that is, but that does seem well, like to be the really, a, a huge cultural change. Yeah, the really cynical take is that there that, that culture is dead, that there is no culture, it's just an extension of kind of um like, like a capitalist consumerism or something like that, right? So the thing that we think is culture is really just a sort of um semiotic version of uh, of of capitalist exploitation right so that people think they've got identities or they think that they are engaging in in media creation or artistic creations but really they're just already being spoon-fed things that like um, that big data is choosing for them or that the algorithm has has kind of um, uh, cultivated for them um, uh, or curated, I was going to say. Yeah, curated. And I think that's like the really cynical take. And I think part of me believes that, right? I think I think part of me believes that. But at the same time, I'm just a big fan of, of, of thinking about how there are always like gaps and flows and fractures and things like that that are always there. And that there is kind of these sites of freedom that maybe that maybe it's easy for previous generations to be more attuned to the sites of their freedom and location, right? Like for us, I can be like, oh, this was what it was about pop punk for me. And then my dad can be like, oh, this is what it was about the germs for him, you know? And and then <laughs> their dad can be like, oh, this is what it was for fucking Elvis that was for me or whatever, you know? Like there's always a way that we can kind of find that. But then I can look at Elvis and I can be as critical and cynical as fuck about this like perfectly manufactured white boy that was just um turned into an image to sell records and control the kind of manipulate the emotional masses of people or something like that and then like you can always kind of create some sort of cynical take on things right um or you can find well was there something that was kind of like bursting forth that was excessive of the enclosing power if you will of of capitalist reproduction or something like that so i kind of like i that, that's kind of what i think does that make sense yeah, I mean, I, I really have a problem with the like the really cynical take, even though it's certainly true in a descriptive sense about what's actually happening. Uh, it's not the case that that means that the whole thing is sort of inauthentic in some way. You don't think that like Nirvana had a manufactured image with the like flannel and yeah. and stuff that was that was like per- perfectly cultivated by record companies to make sure they could sell as many records as possible. Like, you don't think Van's Warp Tour is the ultimate neoliberal vehicle, right? You don't think yeah. that Interscope was like was developing Limp Bizkit in, in like a in like a uh, like in a factory somewhere to appeal to like frat boys who wanted to break stuff? Like it's always been that way. Um, I shouldn't say always been that way. It's it's more or less been that way uh, for as long as there's been sort of a, a corporate music industry, right? That doesn't in any way invalidate sort of the emotional responses that a listener might have to the music, right? Uh, it's important to understand so we can see how the music's actually functioning culturally um, and say, socioeconomically in a certain society, right? We don't want to ignore that fact or obscure it, but that doesn't in any way invalidate, I think, the stuff that we're talking about. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we'll kind of put a pin in that because I think it's it's anticipating a bit of what Bruning's conclusion is on this whole thing. So his conclusion, he thinks, is that... Some of the points that, that have been discussed by the previous couple authors, uh, Dayan and Cooper, um, ultimately are, are missing sort of the, the central point. Like they're making you know true statements, accurate statements, but they're missing a central point, which has to ultimately do with scarcity and the effect of post-scarcity uh, sort of conditions on 
um, the existence and sort of contents or constituents of culture. So um, if we assume, as we've kind of been saying, which is I think is obvious, that you know musical taste plays a large role in uh, cultural and personal identity, right from like the 50s to maybe the early 2000s, at the maybe even further than that, right, pre-Spotify era, but that now it doesn't anymore. And that this is in some way because mm. of music streaming's success in like functionalizing music, right? Making it serve this function in such a way that it completely or largely at least erases this sense of sort of grabbing onto a, a genre of music or whatever and um, making it a constituent of your personal identity. And that's going to mean that spending time where you intently listen to music Right, where you place the record on and you don't look at your phone, right? And you just sit there and you listen or you read the lyric sheet while it's going on or whatever. Uh, you make it an important part of your life and your identity. That's just going to decrease because of the sort of post-scarcity condition of music. You don't have to go and find uh, a scarce record. You don't have to go and get a CD. You don't have to spend much money on it at all, right? It's just automatically there. You can play it on any number of speakers in your house or in your car or in your headphones, right? And the whole library of music that's almost ever existed is available to you um, at the tap of a button, right? That kind of utopic post-scarcity uh, outcome is going to have a massive cultural thing. It's going to produce like a cultural death in an important sense because fewer people are going to spend time actually intently listening to music and that will result in music having less of an effect on the formation of one's cultural identity. That's just sort of not even a normative claim at all. It's just kind of a factual claim about the sort of how cultural identities are formed and that they require some degree, a large degree of investment in something for it to become a constituent of your personal identity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, go ahead. You have a response to that? No, I didn't have anything, I didn't have anything to say because I'm kind of already sort of anticipating kind of what I was thinking about with with what I was thinking about um the the way he frames it with regards to scarcity but so go ahead yeah so I have a quote here from the article which is really the key quote I think and I'll, I'll just read it so that we can talk about it and this really has to do with um abstracting from the instantiation of this phenomenon in music um to just society at large and how the same sort of formal can formal um, phenomenon can happen in all sorts of different uh, like social um, areas. So here's what Bruning says. People generate culture and community in any material condition you put them in and therefore experience some kind of loss when that material condition changes even for the better. Put more provocatively, all material progress, even just progress related to the distribution of income, destroys culture. Suffering, deprivation, and oppression generate unique identities, culture, and communities that will be dramatically changed, if not eradicated, by leftist campaigns to alleviate suffering, deprivation, and oppression. The radical material reordering of society is also indirectly a cultural genocide. And then he sums it up at the end with, you can't change material conditions and preserve culture at the same time. Yeah, so this was the thing that attracted you the most, yeah? About the kind of, when material conditions change, cultural manifestations or cultural expressions or representations or whatever, they also will necessarily be changed, right? And mm -hmm. that that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just we have to become reattuned to the kind of shifting tide. That's the thing that you really latched onto in this, yeah? Yeah, I mean, am I wrong for thinking this is basically just Hegel? Cause that's in what way? First, yeah, um, like just, yeah. Yeah, just in the sense of uh, like the effect of negation, 
right? That's kind of what we're talking about here. Suffering, deprivation, oppression, they're moments of negativity, right? Where you move through the negative into generating mm-hmm. an actual um, synthesized identity, right? And that that can exist uh, beforehand, or at the very least, um, once it exists, it becomes negated and that sort of dialectical process produces new identities. This is, this is sort of a dialectical way of understanding uh, the effects of material conditions on culture and vice versa. Mm. Or at least it's sort of the this, first fruits this... of that. No, go ahead. Keep going. No, yeah, it's at least the first fruits of that kind of analysis. That's, that's not all in there, right? But it's sort of, it's hinting towards that. Yeah. Yeah, people generate culture and community in any material condition you put them in and therefore experience some kind of loss when that material condition changes, even for the better. All material progress even just progress related to the distribution of income destroys culture, he says. Um, so the, let me give an example of how this works in practice in a way that I think really illuminates why it's a moral dilemma. Um, I think for anybody who cares both about uh, the sort of value of a cultural identity and also the importance of improving material conditions, right? We care about both those things okay. and they can come in tension. That's okay. the key, right? So here's an example. Um the sort of technological invention, excuse me, <clears throat> the technological invention of cochlear implants, right? Yeah. It enables uh, deaf persons to, in a sense, hear, right? Uh, if you've, you know, talked to somebody who has a cochlear implant or maybe seen the movie Sound of Metal, you know that it's not the same thing, uh, same phenomenon as hearing. Um, but it's 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 certainly uh, an improvement in the sense of uh, hearing capacity, right? Uh, whether mm-hmm. or not it's an improvement generally is, a, is another question, right? And so mm-hmm. what's been found out um, is that, of course, you know, the deaf community in developing over, you know, many, many, many decades in the United States, at least, as far as actually having a proactive sense of forming a community of deaf persons who um, sort of develop their own language, right, ASL, um, have, by being in this sort of somewhat close-knit community where they where they engage with one another on an everyday basis and form their own language and their things like this have developed an entirely separate culture deaf culture right capitalized mm-hmm. uh, generally mm-hmm. because it is a unique culture and a technological improvement like cochlear implants means any person who sort of gets the implant and uses it on a daily basis no longer has need for um, relying entirely upon ASL or a deaf community in order to thrive. And so the deaf community largely, I don't know, I don't want to say largely, but there is a sense uh, amongst uh, many in the deaf community that cochlear implants are a sort of a way of destroying a culture, of committing a sort of cultural genocide. And that any sort of mandate um, for having young kids who are deaf that they need to or should get cochlear implants because it will mean that they'll be less of a burden in society or something like that is sort of a sort mm. of um uh, it's a morally wrong thing to do because it's a sort of destruction of, of an independent and unique and intrinsically valuable cultural identity being deaf given that they you know have their own language and have their own culture then you know they're not just a it's not just a disability it's a culture i think is the mantra is that not yeah no um so my i i knew someone that he became hearing impaired later in his life like when he was a teenager because of a um, I, I i can't remember the name of the disease that he had i think it's called nf2 your body produces tumors through the inside of your body and he had them in his in his in his something with his nerves and his hearing and the surgery they 
clipped it or whatever. I, I can't remember all the details. It was something along those lines. Anyway, um, he fucking hated the cochlear implants because he had memories of what sound was like previously. And then oh, when he yeah. had gone fully, when he had gone fully deaf, um, he fucking hated it. And um, I remember that was the first time that I had kind of gotten introduced to some of these tensions inside the deaf community about this. But yeah, um, I do remember that there were like there are people within the deaf community that are kind of like they they are almost offended by people that use cochlear implants right and then there are people yeah. who reject the cochlear implants because like my friend who they have memories of what it sounds like to have heard previously and then they're like this isn't what sound sounds like you know and they actually don't like it and then some people they transition smoothly and they can move through the different spaces but yeah i do know that there are some tensions kind of in that in that world yeah and i think if you you know you read any sort of um personal essays from deaf persons who reject cochlear implant, a cochlear implant for themselves, and maybe even encourage um, that it not be uh, sort of become a sort of a, like a societal expectation that deaf people um, receive cochlear implants in, in league with like, or in comparison to maybe, you know, if you, if you break your leg, then you want to get uh, it fixed, right? And to treat deafness mm. as if it's not kind of an uh, accidental thing that happens to you that you want to fix. It's not a thing to fix. Um, it's a cultural identity yeah. that you have. Uh, it'd be like trying to fix someone's race or sex or something, right? Um, mm. So if you're reading to those, you, you really get a sense, um, and, I, and I've really uh, been convinced, at least in part, that this is a really important tension that exists where uh, there is a sense in which a sort of material improvement, and I think it's, you know, some deaf persons would, would take offense to this, but I think it's important to sort of, in a non-normative sense, talk about improvement because it is improvement in hearing right um and we need to be careful to distinguish improvement in hearing from improvement as a person right or you know right it's improvement in related to a specific value that society values right or in relation to a particular um thing that has been given meaning and status so then the question is is what is the role of that characteristic in society is it something that ought to be expected of everyone in this case hearing ought hearing be expected of everyone to be quote unquote normal right so those are the issues those are the questions so it's improvement in relation to this thing that has been given cultural status or cultural significance but improvement is only relational in that sense yeah it's, right? it's improvement in a function right um yeah. but i think it is important to note that it is improvement it's in that function it's not improvement overall or improvement as a person it's not in this like really deep moral sense at all right but it is improvement in a function um and whether or not we can have a concept of of normal function quote unquote normal function as a human being that we can uh judge or evaluate things relative to is super complex and i don't know what to think about that um usually like Intuitively, I want to reject it because of all the political implications that can come from that. Um, but yeah. I think there's there's maybe still some reason to, to wonder if we can have that concept without some of the baggage. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. The point <laughs> yeah. being, um, if it is really improvement in a function, right, uh, then we have this problem where there's a real improvement in the material condition, right? If we're talking about this this sort of functional aspect of hearing that if 
universalized or even, you know, not even necessarily universalized, just made like a, a major feature of life for deaf people would create cultural genocide in the sense of it would, you know, destroy culture and probably eventually will destroy deaf culture, right? Uh, given, you know, basic expectation about the ubiquity of cochlear implants as they continue to improve in functionality. And so that's a yeah. real dilemma because it's good for people who want to hear to be able to with all the caveat decide about social expectations being a big part of that and that those probably shouldn't exist and certainly shouldn't pressure people, right? Also, as a result of those uh, that improvement in material conditions, a real improvement, comes a cultural genocide of a sort and the loss of perhaps an intrinsically valuable cultural identity, a real thing. I mean, I think most people would agree that in some sense, uh, cultures exist uh, independently um, independently of, of any other category. They're not purely reducible to the individuals who are members of that culture and have some sort of value in and of themselves. And that's, people can disagree about that, right? But I think at least we have an intuitive sense that's the case, which creates a real dilemma, right? What do you do? Yeah. Improvements in one area mean irrevocable loss to an intrinsically valuable thing in another. Right. I mean, we can take this into like, um, we can broaden this out into like, pre pre-industrialized communities um like if you industrialize and therefore there are improvements made in transportation improvements made in medicine improvements made in whatever other technology insert technological advance here it does that necessarily mean the eradication of certain traditional forms of communities that have existed for thousands of years, right? Yeah. And there's a strong emphasis on sort of left, like lefty cultural analysis to yeah. really push the intrinsic value of cultural identities, right? Yeah. In a sense that, you know, to make sure that there's some sort of equality there where all the different cultural identities get respected in a similar way and there's not some sort of hierarchy between them. Right. And that's in that sort of that sense is going to which is sort of different than like the um, like vulgar Marxist sense. Right. If you're like a, a really vulgar Marxist, then you're going to think like, ah, you know, culture is just an epiphenomenon of material conditions anyway. Like the really strong version of this. Right. So who really cares? It's all just window dressing um, to socioeconomic conditions, which are the real thing. Right. And that's sort of, mm. you know, that's not super popular today, certainly in lefty circles and everyone's got college degrees and loves music and likes to, you know, dress like a nerd, uh, present company included, right? So mm -hmm. um, that means that you're, this dilemma is going to have much more force for you because you're going to think both sides of the dilemma are are sort of uniquely and importantly valuable. The cultural identities that, that exist and the, the improvement in material conditions and they have a sort of tension with one another, right? Where improvement in one means loss of the other. And it's just sort of, it yeah. is kind of obscured. It's not really talked about very often. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So then let's tie this specifically back to this article. How does the monopolization and the um, homogenization of music streaming services how does that signal the cultural death knell of previous cultural forms? Is it similar? Like, is that it? 
so there, the idea is, again, is we have technological improvements in relation to what being able to access music, being able to listen ubiquitously. I mean, this is also yeah. a very loaded term. Is this even an improvement? I feel like this is different. Like, what's the function that it is improving? And access it seems to, to be music. a bit more of... Con- yeah. Yeah, it, is that contentious, though? As like, a, as like, like an overall t- improvement in human life? Yeah. Yeah, or even just like, okay, so it's it's a... What's, what's the function that it's improving? Access to content? Uh, access to music, yeah. Here's the thing, though. This is where I think the whole argument of Brunig's uh, blog falls. I don't think that it actually is um, like some sort of post-scarce world. I don't think that it's improvement in any sort of meaningful sense in terms of access because similarly, while you're accessing more, you're also transforming expectations. And access itself is a a relative term, right? So if I have access to um, a record store, Right, but that means I have to get out of my house, go to the record store. My expectations of access are shaped already imminently. Right, I don't have any future knowledge of oh, the streaming service will come, and one day I'm just going to have this stuff pumped straight into my brain from the comfort of my living room. Right, I'm imminently in that situation, so I don't necessarily have the desire for anything other. Right now, that doesn't mean like oh man, it wouldn't be wouldn't it be so cool when I'm sitting around with my buddies high, and I'm like, wouldn't it be so cool if I could like put a record in my car and then the next year they're like hey introducing eight tracks or whatever you know um it isn't like that it's it's that at a at a larger level the the intensity of desire is imminently related to the conditions of access that are provided similar here i don't necessarily think that we can speak of improvement in any sort of absolutely objective sense by it seems almost anachronistic or some sort of like historical problem in comparing what we're experiencing now in relation to a previous generation because i don't think that it actually is less scarce as a matter of fact i think there's more scarcity i think of capitalism as actually being an engine a system that produces scarcity and the way that it produces scarcity is by transforming the rate the speed and the intensity of our desires by creating more and more lacks you know like more and more lack i should say because lacks makes it sound like i'm saying lax but more (laughs) and more lack and so i actually don't think we live in a post scarcity society with these streaming services i think it's the literal opposite i think that it's the the sites of scarcity the locations of scarcity the intensity of scarcity um is just maybe uh, been displaced into different forms or it takes place at different at different um like dimensions but i don't think it's ever i don't think there actually is like an overcoming of access because now it just takes different forms it's access of meaning it's access of um like is this part of the cultural discussion um things like that those are the new the new iterations let's say that create the new imminent context and so that's where i think the whole argument of his of his blog ultimately actually kind of falls apart even though I agree with like the assessment that there is a monopolization and a homogenization, but I think that takes place at a different level of discussion. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know that what you're saying is any is in any way inconsistent with the argument here. Um, and it, well, here's here's how how I take it. And tell me if I'm kind of misunderstanding something. Um, yeah, I think that if we want to sort of restrict, because because we're restricting our notion of of where improvement or access is happening here, we're saying it's it's not improvement overall, and it's not access overall it's it's only relative to um literally the playing of music that that actual phenomenon right that actual material phenomenon um 
And that's perfectly consistent, it seems to me, with that sort of improvement in a material condition also ending up sort of uh, entailing a cultural change, which is where the level of desire comes in, right? That actually ends up misusing or sort of sacrificing the very improvement which created it in the first place, right? That seems totally possible. And it probably exactly what's happening. Uh, And that's sort of the worry that the original um, article that Bruni's responding to was talking about, right? Where um, music becomes oral wallpaper, wallpaper, right? That's a sense in which literal like material improvement in in one function right access to music literal material phenomenon access to music results in actually uh less access to the music in a different sense in the sense of it actually being meaningful right um so that seems to me i think what you're saying is totally correct and, and right but um consistent with two notions of of scarcity being utilized there's kind of an ambiguity um between them right yeah where there's one that's a pure material phenomenon, right? That's there is a sort of quasi post scarcity moment. It's not actually the case, right? Because there are still bits and servers and stuff like that, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But you know, much more closer to post scarcity than we were in the '90s with CDs and LPs and uh, cassettes and stuff. Also resulting in a cultural change, which is a negative cultural change, in the sense of becoming music having less access to uh, I was having less access to music's meaningful meaningfulness capacity or meaningfulness making capacity I guess you could say <laughs> right and that's you know the fault of um, largely socioeconomic conditions that incentivize that right yeah I don't know what do you think I don't know I just and I haven't thought this through enough to be able to articulate it like just kind of bandying ideas about here i just i the more i think about it i think that actually resources become more and more scarce because again i think that the notion of scarcity is relational and even material resources and this might sound crazy but i and i don't know if this is true this is why i need to like sit down and really fucking think about this because it's like but it just makes me think that if our capacity for desiring more intensifies then the notion of scarcity itself changes right like the actual quality of the conception of scarcity itself changes so like if i could survive before on 20 of something but now we have a hundred of something does that shift in quantity overcome scarcity does that mean we have an abundance of something not necessarily because if my expectations when when i was offered 20 were only for 25 and now my um expectations are for a thousand when i'm offered a hundred then am i more or less scarce relative to what is provided materially you know what i mean and i think that that go ahead no go ahead go ahead well i was just gonna say and i think that one of the central um effects if you will or one of the kind of like um imminent processes of this thing that we call global capital of what it is is precisely by expanding the domain and the intensity of desire and so I feel like we're actually more scarce because our expectations and our desires are hungrier, so to speak, than in previous eras. And I think that is intensifying exponentially at a rate that the material improvements, quote unquote, can't match. And so for me, it's it's that we actually are, are experiencing more scarcity, but it's just how we understand that scarcity, how we qualify that scarcity is the task. And I don't know how to fully qualify it. So this is like a really kind of unformed set of ideas. But that's why I just think the whole notion is kind of 
I mean, this is like super fucking abstract, I know, too, but that was kind of, that was just something that I was thinking about when I was reading the article. Yeah, I just can't help but think that there's like some equivocation going on there with the word scarcity, right? Because the only sense, like, how many people can listen to Tyler, the creator's new album right now within the next minute, right? I mean, that number is definitely higher today than it would have been if the album came out in 1994, right? And that's literally all that's being said when, when you talk about there being a, a lesser degree of scarcity, right? It, relative okay. to this material phenomenon of the record being played, right? Um, and that is totally consistent with the idea that that material change, that change in material conditions, creates a cultural change where desires are produced that sort of um, makes the meaningfulness experience that you can have with that album more scarce than it would have been if it came out in 1994, right? So like one degree of, of, of scarcity is lessened, while in a, which has an effect, which means another different kind of scarcity is sort of increased, right? And I think you're right that that, that, that happens. And that's totally consistent, I think, with what's being, what's being said here and important to point out, right? And not, yeah. not the kind of thing that Bruning really mentions. His, his like... His concern has to do with with very clearly good material changes in material conditions, which also have the effect of uh, a cultural loss. Uh, whereas what, I think yeah, what yeah. we're talking about here is a, an ambiguous material condition change, right? Um, uh, like ambiguous in like the normative sense, right? Whether or not it's a good thing or not. Um, I think what he's talking about is what about if you take an occasion where you have like just people have more money. Right, and there's less suffering, and they have like literally better access to healthcare, and uh, you know uh, life expectancy you know, dramatically rises, and whatever else, right? Levels of life satisfaction rise. I don't know, whatever things that I think generally leftists would be would sort of signal as being uh, an improvement, a material improvement, um, will also mean a sort of cultural loss. And you hear conservatives actually talk about this kind of thing quite a lot, right? Where, mm. especially the more like old school conservative types who, um, like the Edmund uh, Burke types, right? Who, yeah. Who think about um, any sort of utopian thinking as being inherently bad because utopias themselves in creating real material improvements for people and they'll recognize that they will create material improvements, right? This is not the conservative who thinks that socialism is actually about killing your grandma and, and creating graveyards. Um, full of innocent people, right? No, like, assuming for a minute this actually will work and will improve everybody's lives, that would be bad because there would be a cultural loss in terms of things like a work ethic and um, the, the, like, the like nuclear family hierarchy where there's a, you know, patriarchal-run family, um, whatever else. Like, in some sense, you have to struggle. You can't have all of your needs met without sort of losing something important about your humanity. And that's a really Burkean mm. ideal that... Uh, the more like uh, the more probably thoughtful conservatives really do internalize. They're not the sort of you know Trumpian types who are uh, much more narrowly focused and, and superficial than that. And that's like a real thing. And I don't think they're entirely wrong in pointing out the fact that um, given like the success of of the socio socioeconomic goals of socialism, right? There would be this outcome where you would have real cultural loss, right? Uh, to some degree. Mm. And there's, a, and this is where I kind of point to like the Hegelian thing, right? Because the Hegelian move yeah. is to point out that that thing really is valuable. Like just like we intuitively think that it is, right? that cultural thing that we're losing, it's a real loss, but it's also in some sense like a necessary loss 
that you have to be able to hold in your mind in a sense the fact that it's it's a valuable thing and that you care about it and that it forms your identity but also be ready to move on to the next thing and that's like a weird it's like a weird Kierkegaardian kind of holding two beliefs two contradictory beliefs in your mind at the same time kind of thing right like yeah how can you consider a thing to be intrinsically valuable and also think that its loss is necessary <laughs> right um, yeah and not necessarily for a greater good right just for a different good yeah I think the it kind of I, I still need to think about kind of what my where my mind was kind of going earlier but I think now I'm also thinking like okay so if that's the Hegelian way of looking at it the like value form way of looking at it like the 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 Hegelio-Marxian reading of it might be like, okay, that's cool and all, except for that the law of abstraction that is actually pulling this whole system forward, that is driving everything forward, is the law of capital, right? The value form. So um, this loss of culture isn't just some sort of innocuous or benign march of progress forward, but rather it's the further enclosure of uh, of 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 values in the kind of more philosophical sense into the law of value in the economic sense. And that is a problem, right? And that would be a very cynical reading of it, but that would be a bad thing, which is a, I mean, I mean, which is a type of Hegelian reading of it, but it's with the kind of like value form Marxist tinge to it. Yeah. Is that not just like challenging the premise that whatever instantiation you're talking about isn't really a material improvement? It's kind of like has the facade of one, but it isn't one. Or is it actually saying, yes, it's a material improvement, but there's this like cultural loss in the form of desire control or manipulation or something? Yeah, a material improvement toward what end? Towards social domination? Like a mm -hmm. material improvement to what? Increase flows of capital? A material improvement that what? Gives us more capacity to stoke dopamine flows? Is that actually a material improvement in relation to what like should we have access to more 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 constant 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 like those are questions that that i think we could ask um and i don't want it to sound like i'm just some sort of like fucking uh cottage core uh what is it the fucking oh god i was <laughs> into it for a minute uh oh god anarcho tribalist shit what's it called anarcho primitivism <laughs> um <laughs> like john zerzan and stuff like that um yeah. but really i think those are questions that we could ask right that 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 we ought to ask that we ought to consider so i don't and, and i to be honest i don't know that like a part of me there is a part of me where i do think sometimes with like a sort of like traditionalist and romantic mindset and i'm like fuck maybe we should just all have like these tiny homes with like logs and that we just chop and make our own fires and we build our own bookshelves with our hands and we just fish and hang out and and then another part of me is like damn dude i fucking love going on high speed rails and going to the theater and <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, i'm just per i'm perpetually confused there but you know what i mean like i do think that it's important to kind of think about this hegelian synthesis that you're talking about in relation to the material conditions of global capital flows and that what is the system that is driving what is like the larger container that is compelling these technological advancements forward in the first instance right and then you can be like okay so let's take the cynical idea and say yeah okay uh, this law of value, the, the this law of abstraction is further and further enclosing things. But then we can say, okay, but does that mean that it covers entirely all 
cultural freedom? Does that cover entirely all cultural expression? Does that cover entirely all human expression? And that's where I, I don't think it does, but I think it's a very fraught, um, I think it's a very fraught paradigm that we're, that we're confronting. And I think Brunig's idea is much more kind of like this progressive, almost evolutionary kind of idea that's like, oh, if we improve the material, because he even says it, like his whole life has been dedicated to like social wealth funds and let's get healthcare for all and things like that. And that's fucking fantastic. But I think he almost kind of has more of a linear conception of development and progress than I am comfortable with. Oh, yeah. I have no doubt that that's the case. Um, And I think you're right to point out, and I think one thing you're also pointing out is that um, this sort of bifurcation between changing of material conditions and um, or improvement in material conditions and cultural change is is not an easy bifurcation to make where there's like a purely linear causal. uh, Yeah. Nor nor is he really, I think, entirely assuming that, although he only kind of mentions the one, the like unidirectional relation there. Um, And so it, it is the case that if you're talking about, well, a material improvement might be like access to money, right? That's certainly a kind of classic socialist material improvement, right? But of course, the context in which you have more access to money really matters. Is it a context in which you have to spend that money to get literally all of your basic needs met? Like like a kind of libertarian uh, version of um, a UBI might be? That's going to be very mm-hmm. different than in a world where um, your your basic needs are met and then you also have a UBI access to money you can use for purely for self-expression, right? And for creation and, and, and stuff like that. It's going to be a very different context in which the same material improvement is going to have, uh, it's going to be a, a, a different uh, kind of material improvement um, given the context, right? Is that kind of one thing you're pointing out? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's yeah, definitely yeah, definitely. That's definitely correct, right? But I think even if we wanted to remove that and say like optimally, like think of the optimal scenario where you have access to money in a context where all of your basic needs are met and so that money can be used for something as innocuous and safe and generally thought of as good as possible, like, you know, just for the sake of self-expression, right? To create shit, right? To... Uh, fish in the morning, critic in the evening, or whatever the hell that line is from Marx, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, even in that purely optimal context, in which the context in which the material material conditions are improving is itself totally optimal in whatever way you, you the listener, imagine it to be, right? Even then, you're going to have this phenomenon of uh, cultural death in the process yeah. of that entirely innocuous um, and, and perfectly good and valuable material improvement, right? Even in the most optimal scenario, it's never going to go away, right? Sort of march of the negative continues apace, never reaching, mm. like, you know, the absolute ideal or whatever. Um, and that's just such a fascinating idea, I think, because I think, especially among leftists and, and self-described socialists, there's kind of an, a sense that there's a regulative ideal that we have that's like perfectly just, Right. And that and this is kind of in Marx too a bit, right? The very idea of communism, um, where politics is kind of over, like human nature changes in such a way, given the change in material conditions, um, that's like uh, some sort of um, harmony with equilibrium becomes possible and becomes instantiated, right? And even if people mm-hmm. wouldn't admit to that, I think those of political persuasion similar to us would probably 
have some sort of at least unconscious ideal in their mind of that as being the again the regulative ideal by which they evaluate and judge um you know the current fuck uppery of everything right as being a fuck uppery yeah. relative to that regulative ideal um and yet that's i think that's wrong i don't think politics would ever end uh i don't think it's even <laughs> possible for it to end um i think that like there's some sense in which we'd have to conceive of that cultural loss as being i don't want to say necessary because that, that's the part of like the hegelian enterprise that i'm not going to like subscribe to right it's like the necessary um linear march uh of the dialectic um but some sense in which in the in, in the instance of of that cultural loss happening because of 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 some you know advocated for um material condition improvement that that's you have to admit both sides. It, the, the cultural loss is really a bad thing and the material improvement is really a good thing. Uh, and there's no way to trade off, really. You can't say that the material mm. condition is worth the cultural loss. I can't tell the deaf person. I know you right. care about deaf culture, but people having access to cochlear implants is more important than your deaf culture. I don't think you can say that. Mm. Um, but I also don't think you can say the reverse, that deaf culture is more mm. important than people having access to cochlear implants. And that makes like... That makes your decision procedure seem impossible, because if you can't say either one's better than the other, then how do you decide, as a society, what to do? Whether or not to invest in cochlear implants, or whether or not to um, not invest in it instead, give that to you know deaf deaf culture or whatever, so it can um, build itself up. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you make those decisions, given hmm. that there's there's value on both sides, and I don't think that they're comparable. I don't know. Yeah. 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 This is where, in, in a weird way, this is where we kind of go back to the whole Prozorov idea of how world politics is fucking difficult. Because if you're going to try to create some sort of global system of, of kind of political order, then you're going to run into these problems. And it's like, well, mm. you can't just retreat and be like, well, fuck it. We just got to let everybody have their own little pockets, right? And everybody just kind of runs their, like, just localism run wild you can't have that because then how do you fucking transport food between them you know and how do you prevent wars and so it's it's a fucking yeah yeah it makes it it does make you want to go to like passive nihilism well if i can't compare the values then just make it all the you know individual group's choice or whatever and that's just yeah that's right it's not really tenable just yeah, just endless localism. Yeah, like, yeah. and you can't have that because that's also what fucking the remember fucking the white nationalists want. They're like, hey, we don't mind <laughs> black people; they can have their own little community over there. Just let us have our own little white community. And you're like, great. So that's also fucked up. Yeah, right. There's a big difference Ri- between Ri- like, Ri- <laughs> yeah. Richard Spencer literally said that. You know? Yeah. He's like, oh no. He's like, I don't have a problem with black people. He's like, I just don't want them in my community, sort of thing. And it's like, cool. It was, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there are bad cultural identities. <laughs> there are bad <laughs> cultural right. identities. That's right. That doesn't mean there's a single good one or even a hierarchy of the good ones, right? Probably not. I think they're probably going to not be comparable in that way, that are incomparable in the sense that we're talking about uh, here as well. But then there are also bad ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The cultural identity uh, that is, I'm a man, and so I should dominate a woman and dominate my children, is a bad cultural identity. <laughs> right. So maybe what we need to do is we need to have a system where there is like one, there's like one, I'm viewing this as like layers. There's like one layer where all of the 
equal in terms of value cultural identities are laid out and they can have their own local autonomy but they're sort of encased within some sort of global system for interaction and then we just cut off all the bad ones and then <laughs> and then and then when new bad ones emerge we just cut them off did i just invent cancel culture by the way <laughs> <laughs> the the president of cancellation austin Hayden smith <laughs> Your culture uh, is bad, and you have a big stamp yeah. that just says "bad culture" on it, and you stamp the, the, right. the document That's of right. culture. <laughs> no, and, and I think Fuck. you know an important point there would be to say that even if you can talk about good cultures and bad cultures, it's obviously not going to be as simple as like a neat binary, right? And even you no. might consider two cultures to be good, and for them to be incomparable, and yet to have way more problems with one than another, right? Uh, or way yeah. more uh, bad things within an otherwise, you know, pretty good culture, and it's still not to be in any, in any like value notion sense worse than a different culture. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is a, a huge like can of worms. But thinking about like if we talk to um, uh, like uh, citizens of, of China um, who might defend. Um, what we might call like authoritarianism in China as a, as a, like a, a cultural identity, like a, or a, a facet of culture um, that's, you know, quote unquote Eastern or whatever. And that Americans just can understand with their love of abstract freedom or whatever. Um, and that becomes very difficult to talk about. Right. Um, mm. But that's just like, I think one example of where you can allow a sort of pluralism to exist while also, I don't know, like quote unquote, having a problem with it. <laughs> No, right. <laughs> Did you just invent liberal tolerance, Troy? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is not the gosh. open society, yo. No, no, that, no, that, no, no, no. Yeah, that yeah. was definitely a hierarchy. Like the open society, that's some like hierarchical shit going on there. <laughs> uh, all right, let's go ahead and wrap up the main segment there. Lots of stuff. I'm still thinking through some shit. Um, I'm sure I'll perpetually be thinking through this stuff, but yeah, good stuff. Um, I'll put the link to this little essay down in the show notes. There, it's just a little blog. It's really short. Uh, probably read it in you know five minutes. Um, oh, yeah. and uh, Matt's a very a very clear writer too, so it doesn't bog you down with um jargon or anything like that. And he just pretty consistently, I think, writes and thinks about really important things. So, if you don't know Matt Brunig, um, I would definitely recommend uh keeping keeping him as one of your people that you kind of tune into um but yeah man let's wrap up the main segment there and get into the sticky leaves yeah 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 all right so we're into the sticky leaves segment of the podcast and for those who listen you know the sticky leaves is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's you know we're finding meaning in in a potentially meaningless world so austin what's doing it for you this week well, I mean, I figured we kind of had to. Let's do a joint one on this one, right? Let's talk about the NBA Finals. Did you think that uh, I was going to talk about this? Did you think like, I was going to bring you're this like up? The, you're the best kind of friend. <laughs> you make a sticky leaves that's like just for me. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the NBA Finals. So for people who know or don't know, um, the Milwaukee Bucks just won the NBA Finals in six games. I didn't get to watch a single full game. I watched uh, all the highlights of each game after the fact, and then I watched the last like five minutes of game six. Um, and then, of course, Troy sent me um, all kinds of goodies as well, like 
interviews and stuff like that. And then I got a lot of like really like viral video stuff. And some of the things, let me just talk about some of the things that I thought were really wonderful. Um, first of all, Monty Williams, um, mm. the head coach of the Suns. He just came out, it seems like, as like one of the one of the one of the coolest um what's the word I'm like one of the one of the kindest, one of the um one of the strongest like type of of male leaders that are in sports right now that that I that I have encountered. This is how he comes across to me. Um and I think that shit's really important. You know, like I remember when I was younger, my dad, the 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 man that actually officiated my dad and stepmom's wedding, was my dad's old basketball coach. My dad had issues with his dad, um, which makes sense because then he decided to pass those daddy issues down to me as well. <laughs> so cool, <laughs> thanks, pop. Um, but anyway, um, my dad had had his own kind of issues with 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 his father and abandonment and stuff like that, and so his basketball coach, his high school basketball coach, kind of became his surrogate father, you know, in so many ways. And so I kind of always was raised thinking that it was, you know, important to have like a, a kind of figure in your life, someone that would teach you things and things like that, right? And there was this video that went viral of Monty Williams talking to DeAndre Ayton on the bench where Ayton had his head down. And uh, I don't know if it was defensively, but he wasn't playing so great. And Monty Williams just gave him some of the most encouraging, but also empowering words like you could ever expect and and the thing that's so amazing too is when you're dealing with high school athletes you're dealing with kids right you're dealing with like Mm. 14 to 17 year old kids so it it seems i don't know if it's easier but it seems more easier to me to kind of slip into a type of authority and then like um like Tutee, is that you? Not tutor, tutee. Um, uh, <laughs> a type of relationship, um, you know, mentor-mentee type of relationship. But when you're both professionals and you're in a star-driven league like the NBA, where I often wonder, like, how much do players listen to the coach? Like, what is the role of the coach? How does the coach command respect mm-hmm. from players? So it, it's always kind of something that is a challenge, I think. And the way that Monty Williams was talking with Aiton when he was sitting on the bench, it was encouraging, but also empowering. And it was also loving, but also intense at the same time. And he was kind of like, look, the reason that you're low right now is because you've set yourself a really high bar. He's like, that's great. He's like, go now meet that bar, right? Like, go meet those expectations that you set for yourself. And he's like, you don't have to worry about the stats and stuff like that. He's like, you can will the game through force. He's like, so go out there and will it through force. Take the game back by force. And then he went out and he had a great rest of the game, right? And so there was just something about that. And then I, I saw Monty Williams at after his team lost in game six kind of just cry on stage talking about how much it hurts, how he wanted it so bad. And that vulnerability I thought was really beautiful as well. You know, um, you do see athletes cry like when Joel Embiid cried after Kawhi hit that, that game-winning shot a couple of years back. And, yeah. and that was kind of a lot of people were like that was really going to change him and motivate him. And I think there's just something beautiful about seeing these – superhero people (laughs) that are on our tv screens be emotionally vulnerable and strong and powerful and open and i think that was something that was really beautiful so that's the first thing that i would say i really enjoyed that i I kind of enjoyed a lot of the stories that came out of of the finals what about you man well first of all do you know monty williams story his background no um so he played in the nba he was a small forward i think he played for the spurs most famously in the 90s He's kind of like a defensive specialist kind of guy. 
Um, okay. And he was an assistant coach for a long time. And he then he coached the, uh, I think the, the the Hornets at a certain point. Yeah, I mean he coached when Chris Paul was there because they were they were uh, they partnered up back then in Chris Paul's early okay. years. And when they were the New Orleans Hornets, who eventually became the New Orleans Pelicans. And then he, um, after he got fired from that job because they you know didn't do super well, he was an assistant coach. I don't remember where. And his wife and if not all of his kids, several of his kids all died in a car crash. Oh, fuck. Yeah, so um, his whole family basically died in a car crash. Uh, I oh think maybe on the way to see him or after a game or something, but he wasn't with them, obviously. And um, yeah, he took like a couple years off, obviously. Yeah, fuck, I had no idea. I mean, I guess maybe that would explain... I mean, you learn a lot through those types of things. Maybe he just... Fuck, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it obviously it, it builds character, for lack of a better term. I know that could be so vague, but so maybe um, maybe that's part of the reason that he is so open and that he wanted it so bad, as he said, that, um, that he's kind of carrying other ghosts with them, as we all do when we accomplish any sort of tasks or when we're engaging in any tasks. And and the ones that he's carrying with him sort of kind of give him that vulnerability and that openness, but also that drive and that passion, right, and that intensity. Because there are a lot of people saying that he should be coach of the year and stuff like that for this year, right? Yeah, um, I mean, the Suns certainly outperformed any expectations uh, that anybody had for them. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's funny because he's so well-respected, um, not just because a bad thing happened to him, but because the way he responded to it and um, his openness and vulnerability combined with obvious emotional and moral strength, right? Which yeah. is a tough, it's a tough thing to have both of those at the same time and do it properly and appropriately express both of those to other people, right? Um, For sure. And uh, I think, you know, he's, he's a really cheesy dude. Like he's a coach who says he's a Christian and he's a coach who says frickin' a lot. Like if you, you, know, yeah. you know a person in your life who says frickin' a lot, that's a very, especially if they're an adult, right? Yeah. Um, that's a very cheesy person. And the fact that he can be kind of cheesy like that and be like, you know, yeah. the Christian dad, but also like you can't really be cheesy when that kind of tragedies happen to you and you've like yeah. internalized it and it's become part of who you are. Um, so that just, I think, is why people have such amazing respect for him and why he can say those things to Aiden in a way that they is going to listen to, right? Because this is no, this yeah. is a person you, this is a person you fucking listen to. This is a person you freaking listen to. You freaking listen to him. <laughs> All right. Now go off. Go ahead. Now go off about Giannis. I know you're going to want to go off about how, I know. Well, I, what's your, I, what's I, your reaction? What's your favorite Giannis moment of the last few days? Well, I mean, it's got to be the one that you showed me, that clip uh, where he's talking about how, you know, they're asking about how he can, like, stay consistent and shit like that. And he just goes off on this, like, beautiful – he, he kind of gets – he's like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to say something that, like, I've never said before. And he's like, life kind of taught me. And he basically says that when I'm stuck in the past, you know, like, I did this. I got 25, 10, and 10, and we did that, and we did this, and we did that. When I'm stuck in the past, that's my ego. And then he's like – and then – when I'm focused too much on the future, like, oh yeah, we're going to do this and I'm going to do that and we're going to do this. He's like, that's my pride. He's like, but when I stay present and when I'm in the moment, he's like, that's when I don't have any expectations. That's when I don't have any pressures that are put on me. He's like, that's when, that's humility. And I fucking, that is like the most amazing formula. <laughs> like even, 
I'm like, fuck, dude, that is so good. There's so much there to unpack. So for me, I fucking I love that. And then I love the video that you sent me too of the two dudes. I don't even remember who they were. Um, but the announcers are like, "How much champagne have you guys had so far?" And they just look at each other like, uh. <laughs> "A lot, a lot of champagne," is what they were basically saying with that look. And and you can't forget my favorite moment. Obviously, the my favorite moment was the philosophical. Uh, exposition that that Giannis did of like uh of psychology <laughs> but um yeah even maybe even better than that was Giannis scored 50 points for those who don't know in the final closeout game which is the most points ever scored um in a closeout game in the finals in addition to also dominating defensively having five blocks and like th- 14 rebounds or whatever um and again in a game where everyone else was playing like shit on his team um and so he the next morning went on uh, Instagram live and went to Chick-fil-A and told the girl in line that he wanted 50, I think he said McNuggets, which is hilarious to go to Chick-fil-A yeah. and call them McNuggets. Like, <laughs> you're giving Chick-fil-A this great advertisement, but then also just owning them in the process by saying McNuggets. <laughs> um, he goes, I want 50 McNuggets, not 51, not 49, 50 McNuggets, okay? <laughs> in his lovely Greek accent. Um, with like the best smile on his face. And for those who don't know, Giannis Antetokounmpo is has such an amazing story. And it's like, it's kind of, it's almost two storybook, right? Where mm. um, his family's from Nigeria. And before he was born, I think only his older brother was born. They uh, emigrated to Greece illegally, I believe, uh, and had no citizenship status whatsoever in Greece when he was born. Uh, they changed their name to have a more Greek form as opposed to Nigerian form to kind of blend in and not face any sort of racial backlash um, from people there um, when the kids are growing up. And Giannis has, I think, four brothers total, two of whom have played in the NBA, but they suck. Um, hmm. And um, he and his brothers would basically, they, they would sell trinkets and DVDs and stuff on the street uh, to make money for the family to eat. And Giannis talks a lot about how he, even though he wasn't the oldest brother, he kind of had an older brother role and it would like make sure the other brothers had enough food to eat and he would tell them he already ate and then give them his food and do stuff like that. He and his brother Thanasis, who's one of his older brothers, um, but he also plays on the books with Giannis. Um, they would play basketball in Greece when they were teenagers and they would share the same pair of shoes. So they couldn't play at the same time. They had to alternate mm. and and share each other's shoes because they only had one pair. Just crazy stuff like that. And he gets discovered in Greece, plays for a pro team. Greece gives him a citizenship status, but not his family. There's a whole story about um, uh, him trying to get citizenship status for the rest of his family and not just himself. Um, and then, you know, the, it gets discovered by an NBA scout and then the rest is history. You know, he becomes a most improved player, two-time MVP. Now he's a champion. Uh, it's a crazy story. Defensive he's player clearly, of the year, finals MVP. Yeah. Yeah. All, everything. Um, and still seems to be fairly grounded right i mean as much as you probably Mm -hmm. could possibly be given that you're incredibly famous and have all this money and and shit like that uh just really cool stuff um it's impossible not to not to root for the guy and it seems like fucking million dollar smile yeah yeah yeah, huge smile yeah it's it's almost like you're waiting for the fall to happen because you know he's (laughs) he's like good looking and charismatic and funny and charming and, and seemingly humble and has this amazing story and everything and clearly has like an incredible work ethic and 
it's almost like it, it's too perfect to be true and it's like something bad's going to come out about him but yeah and know, he man. stayed he stayed in a small market rather than going to do like the super team thing where bringing in superstars and um he's, a, a he lot said of people say basically he's, fuck super teams right in that yeah first game press conference <laughs> That's right. That's that's exactly. I mean, he essentially did, and I've heard some people say that like maybe it saved the NBA in a lot of ways. I wouldn't go that far, but it definitely was a big win for the the small markets. It kind of like a. I mean, it's hard to say. It's like a David and Goliath thing, but um, in terms of the pressures of the league and the trajectory of the league, it is a kind of. Uh, it is. It is. Now he got some. Some of the wins did blow in his favor with injuries but then again mm-hmm. he also i thought he fucking hyperextended his knee and i cannot believe there wasn't any ligament damage did you see how far that thing bent back in the last series like yeah it was like an acute angle basically <laughs> fuck how does that not tear up any ligaments and yeah so um it's interesting but yeah he does he does seem just like this and it's so funny because you were talking about him on this podcast a couple years ago and you were like it was like when he first had his first big breakout season and you were like watch out for this guy you know you're like this guy does this the fucking euro step from the three-point line and lays it up <laughs> you're like this guy is he's unbelievable and i had never heard of him and so this is maybe like three four years ago it was about four years ago when he had his when he had his kind of coming out party yeah, I remember visiting you in Ireland and showing you videos on your laptop of yeah. Giannis on YouTube. <laughs> so that would have been 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, summer of 2017. So that must have, that must have been like the, the, the year that he came out and was really like, oh, this guy is going to be a dominant player. And you were like, oh, yeah, this guy, he's going to change the league. Um, and it's kind of amazing now that in, in many ways he has, you know? Yeah, I'm just hopeful that it can continue and that, you know, there's this, there's this like kind of cool mythology around uh, NBA superstars where 27 years old is like where the key gets unlocked, right? Where mm. basically every one of the greatest players of all time won their first championship as the key guy at 27. Weird. Um, uh, give or take like six months. Um, everybody, Jordan... Um, uh, LeBron, uh, Kobe in the second go around, right? Because he wasn't the main guy with Shaq. Shaq though was 27 when he won his first title with the Lakers. Uh, mm. I think that, and like the only exceptions are like um, Magic Johnson won it in his rookie year, but Kareem was in his late 20s. Uh, Kareem was you know the the best player on that team, although he wasn't the best player in that series because uh, he got hurt and Magic ended up um, winning Finals MVP. So that's kind of an exception. Um, but otherwise, it's pretty much always the case that any any great team, any superstar uh, that's the clear, clear alpha dog of the team is around 27 years old when they reach that peak. Kawhi was 27 when he won with the with the Raptors as their clear best player. Uh, Durant hmm. with the Warriors. Steph and the first time with the Warriors before Durant got there. There's all the guys 27 years huh. old over and over again. Uh, Giannis is 26, right? Hmm. Um, so it still kind of fits into there. It's very close, right? Uh, but it also, it's like Giannis also hasn't been playing basketball his whole life. Um, so he only started when he was uh, like, you know, 12 or 13, I think. Um, so, and didn't get to focus entirely on basketball in the way that like uh, an AAU re- recruit would in the United States. Yeah. Like Luka, Luka Doncic, right? He's basically like running through 
the European basketball system at a pro level when he's four, <laughs> right? Because um, <laughs> his dad his dad played basketball um, in Europe, so like um, he's the exception where he didn't have that whole procedure to go through, and so he may still just be scratching the surface of what he can be. Yeah, man. So, I mean, I I, I love these types of kind of these stories that surround just the battle between the two teams, you know? And it was an interesting, interesting playoffs, you know, like two teams that I think a lot of people didn't think were going to make it once the playoffs started. I think everybody thought that Brooklyn would make it out of the East and then maybe Philadelphia. I think Milwaukee was maybe the third on most people's lists. Um, and then definitely out of the West, nobody expected that the, the Suns would, would make it. Um, so in a lot of ways, it was really fun, actually, to kind of see these two smaller market teams. And uh, I, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, like, I kind of like a lot of this, like, extra off-the-court story stuff, you know? Like, I love hearing that about Giannis. And I love Giannis going and ordering 50 Chicken McNuggets from Chick-fil-A. And um, I, love, I love seeing the Monty Williams stuff. And I love hearing about, like, his 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 personal life and even though it's tragic um it's kind of it kind of makes a lot of sense to see that now he he takes the the responsibility of this role of mentoring these young men um in the way that he does and it makes a lot of sense that from it makes a lot of sense that he was speaking from that place of depth you know like when i saw that i was like oh my god there was something so profound in it and so it makes a lot of sense because he seems to have maybe a lot of emotional depth that he can use and I don't know. I love I love hearing this sort of thing, and uh, it's just unfortunate that I didn't get to watch all the games. But to be honest, man, um, it's kind of nice to catch to catch all the good bits. <laughs> I mean, I guess I didn't get to watch the uh, the, the the sweet the sweet uh, the sweet flows of uh, back and forth momentum and stuff like that. But um, but it was still nice to be able to get some of it. But this damn spherical globe doesn't make watching sports in the United States easy. Yeah, dude. It does feel like a a kind of beautiful, if transient, moment for basketball right now, since everybody universally loves Giannis, right? And maybe he'll will have his downfall like every other hero does, right? Um, but for at least mm. right now, it's kind of beautiful and nice. I do wonder what will you say next year if it's LeBron, AD, Russell Westbrook, and the Lakers going against Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving of the Nets, and every commercial features one of the stars from. T- either team and like LeBron's yeah. Hawking Space Jam 3 or like the Space Jam 2 extended cut and uh, like Kevin Durant's uh, yelling at fans during timeouts on Twitter and through a burner account and like Kyrie's yeah. not showing up for the second quarter because he needs to go um, and like light some candles in the locker room and James Harden's yeah. 270 pounds with a 35% <laughs> body fat but he's still good somehow <laughs> It's the death of the NBA is what we're <laughs> going to – yeah. This is the – Giannis saved the NBA this season, but next season the NBA will reach its end. <laughs> <laughs> you can't fight uh, the march of monopolization, yeah? Yeah. Well, maybe Dame will go to Milwaukee. Yeah, maybe that's what will happen. I don't know. Or go it to New be, York. It would, it would be nice for them next year in Milwaukee to have this like incredible confidence booster given that they've won and kind of beat their demons. Because they've – you know – they're not just an upstart team. They've been uh, good for several years. In fact, they had the best been close, in the yeah. last two years prior to this one and then got ousted early in the playoffs both times with Giannis underperforming and ca- having this kind of, um, you know, a bit of a stigma on him that he's a you know regular season player, not a playoff player. 
Um, I think yeah. that's gone now, though. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right, man. Let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of Owls at Dawn. Uh, if you want, you can always hit us up. You can email us, owlsatdawnpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. And, of course, if you want to support us, you can at patreon.com slash owlsatdawn. I think that's pretty much it, unless there's anything else you want to say, Troy. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? How do you say Das Vidani Amerikanski in Greek? Greek.